Just a quick note, this interview was recorded before the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent protests. So the conversation focuses on COVID, education reform, and Ashton's path into public service and her views on the politics of North Carolina. All are incredibly relevant issues to our lives today. In future episodes, I'll be talking with leaders about racial injustice and police reform. Look out for these conversations. An honorable profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out some of our past episodes with guests like Washington State Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib, Emily Kane of Emily's List, Stephen Reed, the first African-American mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, and dozens of amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Today, I'm talking to North Carolina Representative Dr. Ashton Wheeler Clemens. A North Carolina native, she prepared for politics by being a kindergarten teacher, a principal who led a turnaround of the state's lowest performing school, and a mom to three kids under the age of eight. She ran and was elected in 2018 and has quickly established herself as a leader on education, voting rights, health care, and finance. As you will hear, she's also a leading voice for engaging women, minorities, and young people to run and serve. North Carolina is a critical state in the 2020 election, and Ashton is fighting to ensure that both we and our kids win. Ashton Wheeler Clements, welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Thanks. I'm glad to be joining you. So the first question I think uh, we all should ask each other is, uh, how, how are you doing during this pandemic? Um, how's your community and how's your state? Well, I personally am doing the balance that parents across our country are doing. I have an eight-year-old daughter and twin five-year-old boys, and so I am trying to do my work as a legislator while also doing the homeschool and trying to entertain our kids at home. And so that is a delicate balance, and I feel I know... um, Many families across the country are doing that balance. So, but we are happy to be safe as a family and uh, hunker down in our home. Haven't seen people for a while, other than waving on the street. Um, I think as a community, Guilford County, where I represent, uh, is faring. You know, similarly to across the the state, and we have in Guilford County a. Uh, we have a large housing issue here. We have the highest eviction rate in our state. And so I am worried as some of our statewide precautions, like we had statewide moratoriums on evictions, but as some of those and 
uh, our unemployment benefits have a 12-week maximum here in our state. So as time goes on, uh, you know, our area will be hit by some of those economic impacts uh, significantly. And, and so trying to brace our community and prepare as much as we can and understand those needs. And as a state, I think we are uh, working hard in the legislature. I am proud of the immediate work we did to respond to COVID-19. I think we are starting to pivot to some of the more long-term work, and that is always more difficult. And so um, we just, our session started today, actually, our short session for this year. And so we are going to start to really dig in in the legislature and we'll be dealing with budgeting, which is going to be an issue for all of us, local and statewide and federal government, um, as we see decreased revenues, of course, and what is that going to mean for how we support people in our state, particularly in this environment. So, you know, I think we are trying to balance all of the needs that we have right in front of us in the long term. And how are you engaging with your community? I mean, a lot of us do town halls and are used to sort of seeing people in the grocery store and talking through these issues. How, how, uh, since the sheltering in place, have you been trying to stay in contact with your constituents? Sure. So I am a kindergarten teacher in my past life. And so for me, it is very hard to not be able to actually see and talk to and hug and um, be able to be with people. I know that's hard for lots of us. For me, we are, I am doing a lot of technology-based constituent work, and so we are doing town halls regularly. I actually have a town hall tonight at 6.30 on education. Um, I do a virtual story time once a week for kids. Uh, so we are trying to be creative with how we're doing it virtually. We are spending a lot of time, myself and my legislative assistant, responding to requests that we're getting through email or text or phone calls of people trying to help with unemployment benefits or other things that are happening. And so we are spending a lot of time that way. So we are trying. It is not the same as being able to be with people. I do a whole lot of in-district events usually. So it has been an adjustment where we are trying to do as much as we can technologically. I do not. We have... We go to the grocery store Target very irregularly, um, so I am not there a lot. I did go yesterday and ran into a couple of people, so certainly you run into people a little bit, but I would say more just through uh, the town halls, virtual things that we're doing, and email. Yeah, and what does your day look like uh, in this pandemic? As you try to do this outreach and try to – the, the the difficulty and the uniqueness of each, I found, of each one of my constituents' challenges, you know, every small business is on a different path. The larger employers, the individuals, the renters, everyone's sort of trying to, everyone's being hit in a different way. What's your day look like when you're trying to, to talk to folks? Sure. Well, I can use today as an example. We, um, had I had a finance committee meeting at 8.30, so we're doing this virtually right now. Uh, so we did finance where we passed three bills on summer providing some tax relief to individuals and businesses. And 
some debt modernization to try and prevent uh, debt collection agencies from preying on people in this moment. So we did that, had finance committee. Then I turned that off and did my schooling with my kids uh, for about an hour and a half um, where my daughter's doing her work. I'm working directly with my sons. And uh, then we ate lunch and I actually spent about an hour and a half doing calls uh, responding to needs. Uh, we had a couple of unemployment needs, but there was also a constituent who was really concerned about their father who's incarcerated in one of our state prisons and whether his health was being looked after. So it was on the thing with our Department of Public Safety about that concern. And then we had a caucus meeting at 1 and session at 2.30 where we're voting by proxy. And then I'm doing this with you and I have a town hall tonight. So I think it's a mix of all of those things kind of every day, but I would say that's today's plan and that's pretty representative of, of how my days go. That, uh, yeah. And I'm, I mean, I think maybe the folks listening, but it is so taxing to try to, uh, we, I just finished uh, our County Board of Supervisors meeting and to, to hold a meeting virtually and vote and pay attention and try to pick up the subtle shifts in your colleagues, uh, then to hear people's real panic and concern about what's going on in their lives, it's a long day. So I, uh, and I only have one five-year-old boy, so uh, I can't, uh, <laughs> uh, if you doubled him, I'd be, uh, I'd be in a lot of trouble right now. Yes, I think uh, I think this thing that's a little bit hard. You probably feel this too. Is there is no because everything is virtual. There are some strengths to that for sure. One of the challenges is that there's really no off switch. Um, so there's no like you drive away from your office so you can focus on your family or you leave your family to focus on your work. Um, it's just kind of everything's all at the same time all the time, and that's been an adjustment. And I think it is exhausting for people. Um, I think. I I hear that, you know, people get just burned out from the technology, Zooming, and knowing many of them are having to balance other things while they're trying to be focused on the work in front of them. So I do think it's tiring for everybody. And um, one of the things I think this has made us all appreciate is teachers, uh, as we've tried to do uh, in-home learning and um, succeeded in a couple ways, mostly failed uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, but that's where you came from. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, your teaching, your experience as a principal, and then what made you decide to run for the legislature and, and you know, how have you tried to bring that experience to bear? Well, so I uh, went, we had this program in North Carolina when I was in school called Teaching Fellows where the state actually paid for um, students that were selected to go to our state institutions and then you taught for four years after it. So I actually went to UNC Chapel Hill as a teaching fellow at school and then I taught kindergarten, first and second grade in Durham and then Greensboro and uh, went, got married and went to Boston. Actually, I got my master's in school leadership at Harvard and then came back and worked for four years at our first federal turnaround school here in North Carolina. It, it was the lowest school in our state when we went there. Uh, 100% kids that qualified for free or reduced lunch and more than half spoke languages other than English. And we had 26 languages spoken at our school. And it had been a consistently low performing school. And um, I really went into education because 
uh, so I have this fundamental core belief that every child, no matter who they are, deserves the same opportunities to lead a successful life as any other child. And the only place that we as a country and state try to bring true to that is in our traditional public schools. It's the only place where no matter who you are, you have a chance to go and improve your lives. And um, so I went into our public schools and actually have spent my career in our schools where we weren't yet getting it right for the kids that were most depending on us. So I was principal uh, there, and my third year there, we became school of the year for North Carolina. We had a tremendous amount of growth. We grew about 40 percentage points in the four years that we were there, and it was wonderful work, hard work, intense work, but good work. And then I was principal of another elementary school here in Guilford County and then was an assistant superintendent. And so that was my career trajectory. Uh, Then, let's see, I was peripherally involved in politics before I ran Obama's primary in 2008 for our area, but then we got married, had three kids, so I was not actively involved until the 2016 election. And after that, felt like I, like many people across the country, I had to get off the sidelines, and I started doing some organizing uh, in Greensboro, particularly with women, and kind of started getting connected to lots of different people. And we have a recruitment organization here for statewide offices, the Council of State and State Legislative Races. Uh, for progressive candidates, and the woman asked me if I would go to lunch with her because she wanted me to help her come up with a list of women in Guilford County that could run for state legislative offices, and I was like, sure, I would love to do that. I am quite passionate about underrepresented people being in office, and so uh, we went to lunch, and she said, actually, we want you to run for office, and I thought at the time, so when she asked me that, I was an assistant superintendent. My kids had a six-year-old daughter and my twin three-year-old boys at the time, and I was doing my dissertation, which I just finished in December. I just graduated with my doctorate. And so when she asked me to do that, my first thought was, there is no way I could do this right now. Um, But in our state, uh, there has been a concerted assault, I believe, on our public school system and our traditional public school system. We have taken the cap off our charter enrollment. We have opportunity scholarships, which is uh, the project, the scale up by 2024 would be $110 million a year to private schools um, out of our state budget. We have an intense accountability system, the highest percentage weight on proficiency of any state in the country, which is 80% of our school accountability grades. I mean, there has just been, in my opinion, an assault on our schools. And when you care about our schools as the the vehicle for the children is depending on us I just like over time was more and more distraught and so I kind of you know my first response was I can't do this my husband said um, this is probably not the best time but I also think opportunities like this don't happen often in your life and I cannot say that there was a moment where I thought I'm definitely am going to do this. It was more I just got to a point where I thought, how can I not do this? If if me running can bring a needed seat to break the supermajorities in the North Carolina House, which is what we were trying to do, and bring a voice of education to the General Assembly, and you know, I may not, I may not be the best person. It might not be the right time, but it seems that it's here, and so I felt like I had to at least try.
There are, and here uh, we are. And here we are. <laughs> and, then, and then a pandemic hit. Uh, That's so right. I have so many uh, follow-up questions. So my first question is really from your experience as a principal and turning around a school like that. Uh, you know, what, what strategies did you use and how scalable are they? And, you know, how are you trying to put it to practice in, the, in your legislative policy? Yes, all good questions. Um, so I think that some of it is we had additional funding. So we were able to have an extended school year and an extended school day. And we were also able to use additional funding to recruit some higher quality teachers to the school. So I do think there is a piece of it that are we, are we willing to commit the resources to what we know will improve learning outcomes for, for kids. I also think that part of the argument is frequently money is not going to solve the problem, and that's true too. We could have those financial resources, but the hardest thing we did was we built a culture where we would not accept excuses for the achievement of our children. And so, you know, we said from the beginning this is going to be hard. These kids have challenges for sure, but we will, at my expectation for the outcomes of the five-year-olds in this class are the same as I have for my own five-year-old child in kindergarten. Uh, and we, whatever you, whatever support is needed to get there, we will work together to get there, but we are going to get there. And so that like mission-driven, we will determination, unwillingness to yield um, is, I think about leadership and I think it's about a commitment um, to to be excellent. Uh, we had this moment once where, so as we started to get more and more success, you know, other schools would come to visit us to see what we were doing and how, to, how do we learn from you and what you're doing. And there was this moment I was observing a, a professional learning community where our first grade team was talking about the data of their reading students and where they needed to go with them. And a first grade team from another school was watching them. And the first grade teacher, uh, they were kind of talking about it afterwards. And the first grade teacher from the other school said, well, you know, our kids just have so many problems and we aren't miracle workers. And my first grade teacher from my school said, well, we are miracle workers here. And so that moment sticks out to me because we were, we built a culture of people believing not even miracles, but that that we could do it. Um, and that's the thing I'm most proud of, I think, about the work. And then we really, our school really became a community center. We had GED classes. We had English language classes for parents where they, at night where food was provided and kids would get homework help while their parents were learning English. We had health services provided at our school. We worked with a nonprofit to get computers into every home. I mean, we just, like, no stone unturned. And it actually is funny because <clears throat> some of the – we actually canvassed our neighborhoods as staff, as school staff, which now I'm canvassing as a politician a lot. But uh, we – as a school staff, when we started the turnaround, we went in groups of five or six, each with a Spanish language uh, speaker, and we went to the home of every family and knocked on the doors to introduce ourselves. And so I, that's just an example of our mindset was we are coming to you, we are going to do whatever it takes, and we're going to get our kids where they need to be. Uh, so, you know, the question about scalability, certainly our funding has to 
have education as a priority and be willing to let people think outside the box, like extending the day, extending the school year. Um, We ought to give people the ability to do some of those creative things. Leadership, you know, there's so much study about um, how do we scale leadership. And I think uh, there are lots of good ways to work with people who are school leaders. And so I think if we, so we have the Leandra court case in our state that's been going on since the early 90s. And uh, we just are kind of had a new order recently. So there's a lot of stirring up about it. But it's basically family suit our state because we have in our constitution a sound basic education and these families, you know, very clearly their schools were not providing a sound basic education for their kids. And that has been true for all of our history, but it's been certainly been true through the court case from the early nineties until now. And so we just filed, our caucus just filed two bills um, and, and invest in a sound basic education and ensure a sound basic education And and for me, it's really, are we willing to commit the physical resources and are we willing to truly dig in and what does it mean to have excellent teaching and excellent school leadership? And if we focused on those things, we would see a lot of progress, I think. Um, Unfortunately, in education, because it's so big and so many people care about it and there's so many divergent ideas, I think a lot of times we spend too much time on silver bullets or this program that's going to solve things instead of really digging into the hard work, which is how do you build the capacity of teachers and leadership in our schools. And how do you build the political support for the things you want to do in education um, when education can be such a controversial or divisive subject uh, or litigious in the case of North Carolina. Um, what, how do you, how do you try to communicate your experiences um, to, to people who uh, in your own party, but also maybe in the other party as well? Well, so interestingly, we, I have found now I'm only in, a year and a half into this, but I have found people across both sides of the aisle and in both chambers have respected my opinion and voice in education matters. Um, We just had work groups that the Speaker of the House created in response to COVID. There were four of them, and one of them was the education work group. And each work group had two Republicans and one Democrat appointed as chairs, and I was actually appointed as the Democratic co-chair of our education work group and representative Horn and representative Fraley were the Republican co-chairs and we worked like 10 to 12 hours a day on getting our COVID uh, budget requests and uh, policy omnibus bill together to respond for education. And throughout that entire process, I felt very respected for my experience in education. Uh, So for me, I have tried to have everything I do focused on putting the kids of our state first. And um, I have been, I feel like I've been able to build relationships on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers, like many states, um, we can get stuff through the House and a lot of times it stalls in the Senate. They might say the same thing in the Senate, but I'm biased. Uh, But, um, and so, you know, I think I think 
honoring a commitment to our children and having trying to make the work as much as possible about what is right for the children of our state helps. Now, there are certainly things that the people I'm saying I'm building relationships with, I will never agree with them on. And, you know, interestingly, one of them uh, listened to a town hall one of the other co-chairs uh, listened to a town hall I was doing with the Charlotte Mecklenburg school board. Uh, it was one of my representatives from my caucus and the, their school board chair. And he listened to it and he texted me after he said, I really like da-da-da-da, but I want to correct you on da-da-da, you know. And I think that's good that I, I can have that kind of relationship. And then he said, and I know we'll never agree on blank and blank. And that's true. And, you know, so some of it is, Right now, do I get to put forth exactly what I think should happen in education and expect it to move forward? No, um, because we are in the minority. But do I feel like there is the potential to build relationships and find some things to work on common ground? Yes, I do. And for me, I think we have to focus on that common ground while trying to build the bigger capacity. And I mean, I'm I'm in leadership of our House Caucus campaign team because, like, to really get our state where we need to be, we need to win. So I think I'm trying to do both of those things. Let's talk about that winning because a lot of us uh, look at North Carolina and it's a swing state um, and uh, in many ways the future of both your state but also our country lies in whether you win yes. or not. <laughs> no pressure, right? <laughs> yeah, no pressure at all. Uh, so... Um, you know, give us uh, give us an assessment of where you think North Carolina is right now um, in terms of the 2020 both presidential race, but then also, you know, all the down ballot races that have profound impacts. Yeah. So um, like you say, North all eyes on North Carolina, which is both an exhilarating and intimidating and daunting to ask here in our state as Democrats. Um, we have. So certainly will be one of the biggest presidential battlegrounds. Our U.S. Senate race, uh, Cal Cunningham and Tom Tillis, is, you know, top three of the U.S. Senate races. Our governor is the DGA's number one priority to keep uh, Governor Cooper. Both of our House and Senate legislative chambers are, are like, on the cusp, cusp toss-ups. So it is going to be you know, a huge year to, as an understatement for what happens here in North Carolina. I think North Carolina as a state, when you look historically, and if I just even think from my own experience, is a moderate traditionally state. If you look at our voter registrations, our history, and I think uh, the Republican leadership of the past several years doesn't represent the moderate folks that are actually across our state in many cases. And so I think that there is a lot of energy and understanding for wanting to bring balance back to our state within the statewide races. I think that's why we saw Governor Cooper elected in 2016. That's why in 2018 we broke the super majorities in both the House and the Senate uh, chambers. And so there is people like Tom Tillis, I think, has gone to D.C. and um, has chosen to kind of follow the farther right path in some ways. Uh, you know, he 
did an op-ed criticizing Trump about something and then like walked it back almost immediately. And so I I think people in North Carolina want folks, whatever side of the aisle you're on, that are going to be reasonable, balanced, and put the interests of our state first. And I do believe that there is a growing sentiment that that is not what's happening with the current leadership, uh, both federally and at our state level. So I think it's exciting. We are working very, very hard. We have lots of great partners here in our state. Lots of national partners are really interested in investing in in our state legislative races, but also the federal races and our governor's race. Uh, So I think that we feel... We feel like we are work at the railroad track laid, but I think we are concerned just like everyone else about the impact of COVID-19 on elections. What is that going to mean for turnout, um, particularly with vulnerable voters? Uh, so we are just today, our caucus had a call about how to uh, legislation to put forth to support uh, voting rights that have been requested from our state board of elections. So, you know, we're trying to monitor that closely. Uh, so, I think we are understand the task at hand, are organized, are focused. We have lots of good support from across the country, understanding the importance of our state. And we are going to keep monitoring what's happening with COVID-19 and leave no stone unturned, I will say, certainly. Um, I am actively involved in our House uh, campaign leadership, and we are working just on the way, driving here for this um, call to do this interview, I was talking to two of our you know, top target candidates because I'm talking to them regularly, keeping up with their fundraising. How many calls are you doing to your district? How can we help you? Um, so we are working really hard in our state. And uh, for all of us outside, there's you know this big debate within the party uh, about the, is it driving new turnout or is it swinging moderates? Uh, back to the Democrats and what, you know, on the ground in North Carolina, what are you seeing as a, uh, as, as a, as a, you know, effective approach? I'm going to say both (laughs) Um, because, you know, I think if we look at some of our state rad races, governor, U.S. Senate, certainly presidential, we need massive turnout in our urban areas where we know are heavily Democratic. But then when we look at our state legislative races, if we want to have a chance at flipping one or both of our chambers, the urban, like Wake County and Mecklenburg, which are our most urban, have zero Republican legislators left because we flipped so many seats in 2018 from those seats. And so if we want to have a chance at flipping those chambers, we are going to have to win in some districts that's going to take pulling moderate voters over. And so for us, I think in North Carolina, as a, as a comprehensive strategy, we are going to need to work on having massive turnout. Um, we have lots of universities here, so we have a, you know a lot of younger students, a lot of in our metropolitan areas, we need a lot of turnout, much higher, um, kind of like we saw in 2008. Uh, but we also cannot do that at the expense of focusing on some of our ex-urban and rural districts as well. We need both. And we need to keep, you know, e- even some of our 
state races, our legis- state legislative races, like we have to keep our rural margins down if we're going to um, get to where we need to be. I'm on the board of the One Country Project that's done a lot of good research about that. Um, so for us, it's an it's a both and. I would say not an either or. And um, so North Carolina also has a um, a recent tradition of dirty tricks by the Koch brothers and other uh, really conservative groups to reduce turnout, to limit access, to gerrymander uh, districts. Um, what are you seeing in terms of basic attacks on our democracy going into 2020? Yes, I mean, I, we are really a playbook on how you um, disenfranchise voters, unfortunately. I would say if you look at our history, um, you know, our districts have had to be redrawn several times from different court orders. And uh, it really, Gene Nickel just put out a new book, An Indecent Assembly, that is kind of chronicles everything that's happened in the General Assembly, and I just finished it last night, and it really is daunting when you see it all laid out in that way. Um, I think we are, thankfully, we have at our our state Supreme Court has a, uh, which was made partisan um, by the current leadership, uh, but we have a strong standing with our state Supreme Court. So I think our districts will not change for 2020. I think we are worried about uh, decrease. So already there's been voter. So a voter ID law was added to our 2018 ballot as a constitutional amendment. It is right now paused from court order, but we're worried it did not did not go into effect for our primaries, but it's supposed to be going into effect in November. So there's a lot of litigation strategy there. Uh, so with, that's one area we're really worried about. As we know, um, it was projected that two-thirds of the people that currently would can vote that would not be able to vote are voters of color. And so we know with the intentional strategy behind that voter ID. So um, that's one area where we're really worried. We will see. I'm optimistic with what I'm hearing about the legislation that has been agreed to. Uh, We just need to actually get it through in this short session um, about right now we have to, if you're voting from him, you have to have two different people uh, sign that two different witnesses and a notary. Um, So that is extremely problematic as we're looking right now. No, no. So that's obviously extremely problematic as we are looking um, to, we don't want two people going in and out of a high risk environment right now to sign for voting. And um, I mean, you know, just horrible stories about that, that we've heard from other states where like um, NPR did a story and this 82 year old man had to like go to his neighbor, sign in front of him, pass it through the mail slot to witness. I mean, that's not what people should have to do right now, right? To vote. So um, I think we will be watching carefully what happens in the next little bit um, to, to see. Scary. Uh, my last question, uh, and I wish I, I would love to talk to you more. I feel like you've got so many good insights on, on policy and politics. But um, when you ran for office, you were the, uh, there were no women with school-aged children serving in the legislature. Um, how, uh, and then now I believe there are three, uh, but obviously that's not anywhere close to a representative 
of the of the population and the yeah and the, three out of 170 yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> pretty small percentage yeah. very small so i mean how do we what do we do to change that and um you know having it's one thing to say yes when you sort of uh don't know what the job entails and you know <laughs> you're you're very inspired but now you've been at it and you know what do we do to to make it easier for women with school-age children to run for office, to serve, to be a voice in the system? Yes. So this is something I'm extremely passionate about. I think um, one thing is we have to make it look more, we have to make it common to see women with school-age children leading. So I am trying to do that in lots of different ways. All the virtual story times I do, and I was doing story times in schools, have like a book character of a woman leading. (laughs) Um, So that's a small way, but how are we showing young girls what it looks like to lead is critical. But, But when I'm on like a virtual committee meeting, intentionally if my kids run in and I need to help them with something, I do press, of course, mute because I don't want to disrupt the meeting, but I'm not a afraid to show that this is what it looks like to be a a mom with young kids leading. Um, And I think we we need more people doing that kind of work. Um, I I take a personal responsibility to uh, reach out and encourage women. So like Sunday night, my seatmate, Sydney Batch, who has two young sons, she's from Wake County, we're both freshmen together, Um, are doing a call for all of the women that are running for North Carolina House just to pump them up and give them encouragement. So I think a lot of it is that we have to, those of us that are doing it, need to understand how incredibly hard it is and to honestly talk to other women who are trying to do it. But the structure of running for office has to change if we actually want to diversify who's doing it. And that's women with young children, but it's young folks in general, people of color, economic um, people at different economic brackets. Like in North Carolina, the salary for a legislator is $13,000 a year. And you have to, last year, we were in session from January to November 18th, two to three days a week we had to be in Raleigh. There is no way, unless you have a supplemental income, a spouse who can pay, take care of your family physically or financially, um, or you are just independently wealthy, that you can have that type of salary and schedule. It would be different if, like some states, you're, you know you're going to be in, in and done after six weeks or four weeks. Um, and you're able to get a job and do something else, you cannot do that in the North Carolina General Assembly. And the other, the other way that the structure needs to change to support not just working women, but, or women with young children, men with young children, everybody is, we need some consistency on the schedule. So when we would go into session on Monday night at 7, we wouldn't find out until we adjourned Monday night at 7 what time we had to be there on Tuesday to vote. And then on Tuesday, when we adjourned, they would say, okay, tomorrow we're going to be here at 8 or 10 or 12 or 4. And, like, that inconsistency in schedule is impossible with young children, but it also is for other people to work. So I think if we want more diversified voices, we need it to 
either be a full-time job where people are compensated appropriately, or we need to have a set schedule where people are able to plan and work around that. Having neither just makes it almost impossible. Um, it is it is quite challenging. So um, that would be my long-term game plan, but in the short term, uh, encouraging women. And, you know, I was we have a candidate um, who has three young kids, and her husband works out of town during the week, and she's working. And um, I was talking to one of our caucus uh, staff employees about her race, and she was like, yes, I mean, we want her. We just want her to know we can support her. And I said, I was like, well, you can say that until you're blue in the face unless you understand what it feels like to have three young kids and a husband not there and have to do this like none of us can do that for her so um that's just a reality and we need to own it and help where we can and push us for structures that are better where we can too oh my gosh well good luck because it is so crucial that if we're going to have a democracy that the people who get elected are representative of uh in, in even the most basic levels of of the people in our communities and it just i don't know how you do it but i'm glad you are <laughs> i'm very glad <laughs> you too. are and i want you to keep going but i want to thank you for uh, for joining us on an honorable profession and it's 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 been wonderful talking to you and uh stay safe and uh yeah deliver us a, a blue north carolina in 2020 we are going to do what we can. Thank you so much to you and all of New Deal for including me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>